0: This morning, I would invite you to turn to John chapter 14, as we look at the first six verses of John 14. I think you would, um, would all agree with me that we are living in <clears throat> what we would call troubled times. We, li- we are living in very difficult times. And there are many issues that bring concerns to our hearts on a daily basis. There, there are issues that cause us anxiety and fear and trepidation and trouble. There are many things taking place in our, in our world today that cause troubled hearts. You can turn on the TV or read, read blogs or, or listen to podcasts and hear all the, all the issues of, of political corruption. We're reminded of terrorism. We're reminded regularly of the economy in which we live, in the recession that is looming. There's the moral decline that we see all around us, the declining moral values in our culture and our society. We, we hear of wars and earthquakes, and because of this, there are many people whose hearts are troubled. There are many people whose hearts are weighed down and they're, they're heavy, and I know that is the case for some of you here this morning. Your hearts are heavy, your hearts are troubled, and you've come this morning with a load of cares and weight upon your shoulders. And even though it looks good on the outside, you know that there's a weight in your heart. Some of you are out of work or, or perhaps your hours have been cut. Some of you have lost someone very close and dear to you. For some of you here this morning, there's difficulties in your marriage. Your, your marriage is on rocky ground. For some of you here this morning, perhaps you have a difficult situation in parenting your children. Perhaps you have a prodigal child. Maybe for some of you here this morning, you're you're battling some health issues that maybe only you know about. All of these things combined, all of these issues combined have the effect upon us of causing us to become uneasy, causing us to be intense and weighed down and troubled. But you know what? This is part of life. This is part of the Christian life. There are troubles. There are difficulties. There is suffering that comes with this life. And it shouldn't surprise us that the Bible tells us over and over again that this is part of the Christian life. Job 5 verse 7 says, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. If you've been at a campfire or a bonfire, you've seen those sparks just floating up. He says that it's that's what life is like. Just as the sparks head up, so too is life filled with troubles. In Acts fourteen twenty two, we read, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It is through tribulations, it is through trials, it is through suffering by which we enter the kingdom of God. You know what? It's not an easy road. There are tribulations. Second Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, ready, will be persecuted. That is a guarantee. That's not an if you will be persecuted. That is when will you be persecuted. There are trials and sufferings and persecutions that will come your way as a believer. The question is, how do we keep those things from causing us to be so troubled that it renders us ineffective for the cause of Christ? How do we keep our perspective in the midst of those troubles? How do we keep from getting stressed out? That's an important question because, listen very carefully, stress is sinful. Stress is a sinful and unbiblical response to the pressures of life. You understand that there are pressures in life. You understand that God is giving us trials. God is giving us difficulties. And that's part of following him and being a believer and living in a sin-cursed world. That's all part of it. There are pressures in life, but stress is the unbiblical response to those pressures. Those pressures didn't cause us to be stressed out. Sin causes us to be stressed out those pressures of life. So how do we deal with these, right? That's the million-dollar question. How do we keep from getting stressed out? How do we keep from caving under the pressures of life? What is the cure for a troubled soul? What is the cure for a troubled heart? It is that question that we seek to answer this morning as we look, look at John 14. We're going to find comfort for the troubled soul, comfort for the troubled heart, First, I want to give you the context of what's going on here, though. Jesus has gathered with his disciples in the upper room. It's a mere 12 or 15 hours before the cross, before his death. And he's huddled together with them, with his disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem. And he's giving them his final words. He has washed their feet And showing them love and giving them an example for them to follow. He's identified Judas as the betrayer, and he's already been dismissed, and he leaves. He's predicted Peter's denial, and he's told him that he himself must be going away. And all of this has left the disciples troubled. All of this has left them severely distressed and worried, confused, bewildered, and perplexed. Their hearts are broken. They're full of sorrow. And Jesus, being the loving shepherd, the gracious shepherd, comes to minister to these disciples in their moment of trouble, in their moment of sorrow. He tends to their troubled hearts. Many have called John 14 the comfort chapter because in it we see God's comfort comfort for his people. Jesus is the comforter, and he himself sends the comforter, the Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning and you feel like you've you've run out of comfort, comfort, if you feel like you've exhausted all of those avenues by which you can find some rest, and you feel like you've tried and you've tried and you've tried and you've done this and you've done that, and it seems like you've just exhausted all of your options for comfort, I've got really good news for you. Jesus is the great comforter. And the text that we're going to look at here this morning is give, going to give you and I tremendous comfort for our troubled souls. So read along with me as we read John 14, 1 through 6. John 14, 1. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As Jesus looked at these men, He knew what was going on in their minds, in their hearts. You know, I can be standing up here and and be thinking something about some of y'all in here and you'd never know it. Right. Because you can't read my mind. But Jesus Christ knows exactly what's going on in our minds, exactly what's going on in our hearts. The heart and the mind's the same thing. Right. It's the mission control center of who we are. My heart, my mind is who what makes me me. And it's what make yours is what makes you you. Right. The Bible tells us that the heart is the wellspring of life. Proverbs four twenty-three says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Well, Jesus knew how disturbed and how upset they were, and he knew what was causing it. He knew the remedy for it as well. Twice in John 14 he says the same thing in verse 1. First off, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. The the disciples, they had reason to be troubled. I, I want you to put yourself in their shoes this morning. I want you to kind of put yourself in their environment, if you will, in the situation that's been going on in their lives and their little circle for three years. They've walked with Christ. And just a week before this, they'd come into Jerusalem with him riding on a colt. And the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory be to God in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were shouting praise to Christ. The crowds were going wild and they, they were with him. And so they thought in this sense, in, in this sense of euphoria that they were experiencing, that the kingdom had come, it's here, right? It's here, the Messiah's come. The crowds recognize it. Look how they're responding. Everybody knows it's it's him. They thought their moment had arrived. The kingdom of God would be now be ushered in. And yet now, everything seems to be unraveling. Their world seems to be falling apart around them. Can you relate? Can you relate to that? He's talking, the Messiah is talking about dying. A dying Messiah, that doesn't register. That does not make sense. I thought the kingdom was gonna be ushered in. They, they couldn't fathom this. They couldn't fathom losing their beloved teacher. This thought was almost unbearable for them. Jesus knew that these men were afraid, afraid of what was coming. They were, af- were afraid of death, afraid that they with him were going to be executed by the Jews. They knew of the opposition which had developed against Jesus and against them in Jerusalem. That They knew of the bitter hatred of the Pharisees towards them and the Pharisees' determination to eliminate Jesus and, and all of his followers. They, they knew they were in danger, and so their hearts were deeply troubled as they gathered here with him. But more than the physical danger to themselves, they were also aware of his words about leaving them. They, that struck terror into their hearts. They were afraid that even though they might survive, even though they might escape death, they would have to go on living without him, and that was an unbearable thought to them. He even told Peter that he was going to deny him. In fact, it's going to happen sooner than than you realize. Peter, listen, the strongest of the disciples, Peter, the one that's out front, Peter, the leader, Peter, the communicator, Peter, the one who is always front and center with Christ, that one, the strongest of our midst is going to deny Christ. Well, that's enough to make anybody troubled, right? That's enough to make anybody have a troubled heart. So he gathers with them, and he gives them the first cure to comfort their troubled hearts, and that is that comfort comes from trusting in the person of Christ. Comfort comes by trusting in the person of Christ. He says in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. We, can, we can't see it here in English, but the your here is, let not y'all's hearts be troubled. That is not a Southern pronunciation. That's the truth. He's saying, y'all don't have troubled hearts. Don't let y'all's hearts be troubled. He doesn't want any of them to have a troubled heart over this. He's telling this to the 11 disciples who are still at the Lord's table with him. After Judas had left, we could call these the final faithful 11. Let not your heart be troubled. Trouble is from the Greek word that means to cause inward turmoil. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be stirred up, disturbed, unsettled, thrown into confusion. Remember, this is a command. This is a present imperative here. That is a command. Jesus is commanding us with these words to not let us, not for us to not have troubled, agitated, stirred up turmoil in our hearts. And so if he says it and it's a command, that means, guess what? That it must be possible for us to not let our hearts be troubled, right? And of course, it is possible. And the, the, the way to that is found in the two little words that start it, let not. Let not means that these disciples could do something about their problem. They held in their own hands the key to release their heart trouble. It was possible for them either to let it happen Or to not let it happen. And guess what? Jesus is saying the same thing to us. We have troubled times in our lives sometimes. He is telling us the exact same thing. Troubled hearts, fearful hearts, disturbed, agitated hearts because of what's going on in your life. There is a way out of that difficulty. There is a way out of that distress and fear concerning both death and life. And, And our Lord goes on to give the answer to them. They held in their own hands the key to their release from heart trouble. The remedy for heart trouble is contained in the two phrases which follow. Look at them. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. How? Believe in God. God, who, by the way, is still in control, who knows what he's doing, who is capable of exercising infinite wisdom, infinite power, and infinite love, and believe also in me. That, y'all, is the secret, right? What we see here is that Jesus is affirming his deity, placing himself on par with the Father in an, as an appropriate object of our faith, of our trust, in calling them to hope in God, to believe in God, Jesus was calling his disciples to put their hope, their belief, their trust in him. We need to remember, except for some lapses into idolatry, Israel had a heritage of faith and trust in God, right? Genesis fifteen six: Abraham believed the Lord. And what did God do? He counted it to him as righteousness. And remember, Moses charge to the nation in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In David, in Psalm 25, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. In Psalm 31, he said, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. In a Psalm especially appropriate for the disciple situation, Psalm 56, 3, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. And there are literally dozens of other texts to show us that, that all those who know God will put their trust in him. Jesus was not calling his disciples to believe in him for salvation. They'd already done that. They're saved at this point. The present tense form of the verb believe here that he uses refers instead to an ongoing trust in him. Though they, they had genuinely believed in Jesus in the past, their faith was beginning to waver. They were beginning to doubt. But Jesus didn't need to be visibly present for the disciples to receive comfort and strength from him. Though he would no longer be visibly present with them, the disciples, that he wouldn't no longer be with them in person, his promise, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, will still True, And it holds true for you and I today as well. And of course, we know that later in this chapter, Jesus promised in verses 16 through 18 this, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then in chapter 15 and verse 26, he said, but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. He's assuring them and us that his presence is, is enough to calm the believing heart in whatever perplexing, troubling situation it finds itself. Instead of giving in to a troubled heart, Jesus told them to firmly put their trust in God and in Jesus himself. Now, this was a radical call to trust Jesus just as one would trust God the Father, and a radical promise that in doing so would bring comfort and peace to a troubled heart. One commentator said this. Jesus' solution to, per- to perplexity is not a recipe. It is a relationship with him. The man who said that, that he'd be with them to the end of the age encouraged them to keep on believing in him. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. Present tense. Keep on believing. Keep doing this. You believed in me before I told you I was going away. Keep on believing in me now that I am going away. Then without a break at all in his thought, he describes to them some wonderful events that are yet future, showing them the second cure to comfort a troubled heart. And we see that in verses two and three. Comfort comes from trusting Christ's preparation. Comfort comes from trusting Christ's preparation. Verse two, in my father's house are many rooms, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is looking into the future with these guys. And he offers them more comfort in the revelation that their separation from him would not be permanent. He was going away in part to prepare a place for them where they would be reunited with him. And here he unveils the nature of the future beyond death, the nature beyond this life. And and what happens beyond that? Well, I don't think there's any one of us here, right, that hasn't at one time or, no, or another sensed the fear which lies in the unknown behind death, right, beyond, beyond this life, and We've all felt that strange seriousness of spirit, which comes when you confront the fact of death, the fact that we're all someday going to die and that our loved ones will die. Life here, guess what, must come to an end. What lies beyond? This is what Jesus is facing here with his disciples. He assures them with four revelations about the future. First, he states that what happens is going to be within the father's house. Of course, he's talking to them, as I said, as believers. They belong to him. And on that basis, he assures them in my father's house are many rooms in ancient eastern lands and still today in the Orient. Families that grew and even married still lived under the roof of the father. The roof was just extended and rooms were added onto the house so that the family live together with the father in the, in that same thought is what Jesus is carrying forth here. He's saying, I'm going to expand the father's house. I'm going to enlarge the roof. I'm, I'm, and while I'm there in the building project, guess what? I'm going to have you in mind. He's saying, you have nothing to be worried about, nothing to be troubled over. I shall take you along with me to my home. I think Really, what the emphasis is on here is, is heaven's intimacy. In Re- Revelation 21, verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We don't have time to look at it this morning, but you can jot this down and you can read about this place that Jesus is preparing in Revelation 21, 9 through 27. This is indeed a place of dazzling, inexpressible beauty. You know, there's, we look at things here on the earth and think, oh wow, look how awesome that, look how beautiful that is. Remember, that's cursed. Sin has cursed it and we think it's beautiful. Think of the inexpressible beauty of heaven. And the second, he assures us that this is a certain revelation. He says, if it were not so, would I, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? Third, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, I don't, again, fully know what that means. I don't know that anybody does, but it indicates that there is a need for a preparation of some sort. And the Apostle Paul tells us that creation uh, including not only this planet, not only our universe, but the entire uh, entirety of our universe, not only the solar system, our planet, everything, but everything in the whole universe is in the grip of a remorseless law, which science calls the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, the law of decay, or as Paul calls it best in Romans 8, the law of futility. This is all in the law of futility. Creation is in the grip of futility. It is running down. It is running out. And Paul suggests in Romans 8 that this process, guess what? It's going to be reversed one of these days. The Lord Jesus as Lord of the universe will reverse the law of thermodynamics and change it so that the universe will no longer be running down but will become a new heaven and a new earth built on entirely different principles. And perhaps that's what Jesus has in mind when he says to the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. At any rate, it was necessary for him to do this. He came to prepare them for heaven and he left to prepare heaven for them. And fourthly, this takes us, takes us on into a specific promise of his coming. He says, continuing, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Notice the elements of that promise. It is a certain coming. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Did he go? Yes, history is unanimous. He went. The record shows that he went away. The tomb, y'all, is empty. There's no grave of Jesus anywhere on earth. He has gone away. And if he's gone away, he says just as certainly he will come again. Do you remember how the angels underscored that fact in the account? of the ascension of Jesus in the opening chapter of Acts. And and the disciples were gazing up into heaven as Jesus was ascending. And when he disappeared from sight, hidden by a cloud, suddenly two men were standing there and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven that's an amplification of what Jesus is promising here. If I go away, I will come again. This coming again of Jesus is what we refer to as the hope of the world. That's where our hope is coming from. Jesus reveals that it will be a personal return. He himself is coming back. He will come again. He doesn't send an angel. He doesn't send anyone else. He personally, Jesus Christ, will return. And this coming will involve the departure of the saints that are here, those who belong to him, to be with him. He says, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This certainly is what Paul had in mind when, when he wrote uh, 1 Thessalonians four sixteen and 17. Paul writes, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Paul's words echo the words of Jesus. I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. What an answer. What an answer, right? Not only to the problems of history, but to the personal fear of a believer facing death. This event which is yet to happen in history, the return of Jesus for his own, is the very event, however, that does happen to us as believers when we step out of this time and into eternity through death. That's when when Jesus is coming for us as we die now. This then is the hope. This is the experience of everyone who dies as a member of the body of Jesus Christ, the church. What an answer to the fear of death. This is a promise which every believer has from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Now, our third cure for a comforting a troubled heart comes from trusting in Christ's proclamation. Look at verses four through six. And Jesus said, And you know the way where I'm going. And you know what? That's about as long as Thomas could sit on his hands. And he stopped him in mid-sentence at that point in verse 5. Said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? You know, that tells me an awful lot about the relationship that Jesus had with his disciples, with his men. It wasn't an intimidating relationship. It wasn't an inaccessible relationship. It was a very close personal relationship. One that so close that they were able to stop him in mid sentence. They were able even to challenge what he said. It's an honest statement, right? Lord, you may think we know where you're going and you may think we know the way, but neither is true. Can you remember a time in your life, perhaps, when you've, you've had a troubled heart and you couldn't remember even the basic facts about life? I've had accidents, as I'm sure many of you had, and in the panic or in the shock of the, of the moment, kind of lost my senses. You know what I mean? Not really thinking logically and clearly about what I knew would be the right thing to say or do. In another moment of time I might have been clear headed and been able to go to, to go right through it very logically, but because of the panic of the moment, I kind of get miswired in those situations and I forget a lot of the basic things of life. That that seems to be what has happened to Thomas here. I say that not in a defense of him, but because it's true of human nature, and Jesus, of course, knows that. That's why Jesus never rebukes Thomas here. He that, realizes that Thomas in the panic of thought that my Lord is going away, he's going to leave, he's going to die in the panic of all of that, we're not going to see him again is what he's thinking. In, in the swirl of all of that, Thomas lost his logic for a moment. And he says, we don't know where you're going. How can you expect us to know the way? And very graciously Jesus gives him the statement that becomes one of his greatest titles. Perhaps the most comprehensive of all of the titles Jesus has ever given for himself. He looks at Thomas and he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven statements beginning with the words I am. Each of these I am proclamations furthers our understanding of his ministry in the world. They also link him to the Old Testament revelation of God. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3, 14, when he said, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And because of that in Judaism, I am is unquestionably understood as a name for God. Whenever Jesus made an I am statement in which he claimed attributes of deity, he was identifying himself as God. Here are the seven metaphorical I am statements found in John's gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. There are two more I am statements in the Gospel of John that aren't metaphors. Rather, they're direct declarations of God's name as applied by Jesus to himself. The first comes as Jesus responds to the complaints of the Pharisees in John 8, 58. He says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Boy, they understood that one. What did he just do? How do we know they understood it? They picked up rocks to kill him right then and there. He just said he was God, right? There's no doubt that they understood it. The second instance of Jesus applying to himself, I am, comes in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the mobs came to arrest Jesus, he asked them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. In the Greek language, I am is a very intensive way of referring to oneself. It would be comparable to saying, I myself, only I am. These words reflect the very name of God in Hebrew, Yahweh, which means to be, or the self-existing one. It is the name of power and authority, and Jesus claimed it as his own. He says first in verse 6 here, I am the way. The original term means road or, or path hidden. With it is the idea of a journey going from one point to another in somebody's travel. He's saying, I am the way. I am the road. I am the path from earth and your sinfulness to the Father and the glories of heaven. You know, there's a verse that I quote often to myself when I start to reason in the flesh and just think that I might think... You know, I know what to do here in this situation, and it 's proverbs fourteen twelve and I insert my name in there to help me understand it better. The writer says there 's a way that seems right to Tim, but the end is the way of death and i 'm a little slow, so he repeats it in chapter and a half later sixteen twenty five I guess that 's two chapters later. And he says, there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is the way of death. If I go my way, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. Well, Philo called philosophy the royal way. Confucius called his teaching Tao the way. Muslims, their way hinges on the obedience to the five pillars of Islam. And there are many others we could discuss. Jesus said, I am the way. And he is the way because he takes you there. You know, a perfect example of this would be like if you've never been to Woodstock and you came and you asked me for directions and I said, oh, yeah, I know where that is. And you pull out of here and you go down to the third traffic light and turn right. You go two blocks, take a left at the yield sign, then go down to the uh, roundabout and take the first exit off to the right. Go two blocks. You'll see a Taco Bell right behind the Taco Bell is this little dirt road. If you go down there to the third stump on the right and turn left, you'll be where you want to be. Right. And, you know, you say, I I don't think I can find that. Now, this is pre-cell phone, pre... Um, remember the GPS that you would mount up there and thought you were so cool that thing. But that's before that, right? Before any of that, you you know, you can't remember that. You don't know how to get there. And I said, you know what? I know that's way too complicated, but I'll I'll take you there. Don't worry about that. And now, now I'm just, I'm not going to just give you directions. I'm not going to... Just just tell you the way. I'm showing you the way. Or in fact, you know what? I am the way to where you want to go. The way is just stay attached to me. Just follow me. I'll take you there. And Jesus says, I am the way. I'll take you where you want to go. I'll take you to my father's house. Interestingly, his followers came to be known as people of the way. We see this first in Acts chapter 9. Uh, verses one and two, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Here's a man on his way to persecute Christians and he asked for endorsements from the authorities so that if he finds anybody that is a follower of the way, he could take them to prison. And then in chapter 19, referring to the same guy, but guess what? Now he's a follower of the way. He said this, or it says this, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persecuting them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way... Before the congregation, he withdrew them, withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. So now he's rescuing people that he was trying to get to persecute him. Now he's going to rescue them. And then one more time in Acts 19, 23. But about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Jesus said, I am the way. Jesus didn't hand out roadmaps. Jesus didn't simply talk about the journey. He said to those men, don't let your hearts be troubled. I am the way to God. And what Jesus promised in the first century, guess what? Still true today. Well, next he tells us, I am the truth. Merrill Tenney, a commentator, has called truth, listen to this, the scarcest commodity in the whole world. Truth, the scarcest commodity in the whole world. He continues, truth is neither an abstract system of integrated propositions, nor is it an impersonal ethic contained in many rules. It is both the reality and the ethic expressed in a person. End quote. Truth is a person. Another commentator says it means that Jesus is fidelity incarnate that we can completely and unhesitatingly and without reservation rely on him. You know, I don't know of a search that has lasted longer through time and produced more absurd, incorrect answers than a search for the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth, fidelity incarnate. I am the end of your search. You know, you can, here's a scary thought. You can be so close to the truth And not have it in your grasp. And a classic example of that we see in John 18 during Jesus's trial in verse 37, we read, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Well, you talk about dropping the bait, There it is, right there, the bait, right? Then he says, then the scripture says in verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? He drops the bait and that's how Pilate responds. Here is an educated Roman anti-Semitic to the core who throws his hands in the air in the middle of a trial, walks across the courtroom and says, what is truth? You know, education, even though we celebrated a bunch of it here, Uh, isn't the secret to finding truth, right? As good as education may be and as necessary as it may be to find fulfillment in our lives, only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the way, is the truth. Jesus is saying the search pilot, it ends with me. Jesus is the one at the same time the incarnation of fidelity. He is the revelation of reality. He is the pattern of goodness and perfection. And we can stop, we can stop, we can rest, we can stop searching when we come to him. We have found the truth. Well, he follows that up. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the life. Jesus is the life. The word life here is Zoe, which refers to the the principle of life, that which is eternal as opposed to animal life. Jesus is the life because this life is in him. He is the source and the giver of this life to those who believe in him. Jesus has the light of this life, the words of this life, and came that we, you and I, may have this life in abundance. Life is the dynamic that makes this attainment possible. Life is the principle of spiritual vitality. It originates with God, it flows through Christ, and it lifts us out of our sin And places us on a plane of relationship. It is divine vitality. Listen. Christianity is not. It is not a philosophy. Right. It's not a system of philosophy. Christianity is not a ritual of rules and regulations. Christianity is not a code of laws and ethics and demands. Christianity is the impartation of life. It is Jesus who originates this life. Giving it to one like us who don't have a life so that new life can begin in us when he imparts that. And that never dies, it never dies. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, the source of that dynamic. You wanna have life, you wanna have dynamic, you wanna have a reason to go on. He says, I am able to impart that to you. Look how he concludes, concludes this statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, you can put your name right there, no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, we as Christians who believe that Christ is the only way to God are often criticized, right? This happened to me a week and a half ago in downtown Atlanta. I was with some guys from our church here doing some street evangelism, came up to a guy and was sharing the gospel with him, and he said, wait, you mean Jesus is God? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he got this weird look on his face, and he said, that is arrogant to think that American Jesus is the only way. What about all these other countries where they never hear of Jesus, or they might believe in these other things that we've mentioned, right? And, and, And all I could say was, well, you know what? I didn't say it. Jesus himself said it. Do you believe in the Bible? Oh, yeah. Well, then look, he said it, right? In order to have eternal life, we must be in relationship with Christ. And we got to remember, he's the one that narrowed this down, not us, right? Listen to what he said while teaching at the Sermon on the Mount Matthew 7. Enter into the narrow gate, for broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many enter therein, but narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. What else could John fourteen six mean other than he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If it doesn't mean that, what else do we have as a mandate to take the message of the Savior to a lost and dying world? If the message isn't true that we're talking about, we don't have another one and we may as well go on and do something else. You know, I don't care how morally good or how upright or how pure of a motive someone may have without the knowledge, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in that life, that person will not, will not go to heaven. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me. He said it. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. You know, there are three things that this does for me with my troubled heart, when I read in the context of where this name appears, this I am name, I see first of all that this relieves my fear, my fear of getting lost because he is the way. I remember one time I was probably 10 or 11 years old and was with my family on vacation in Fort Lauderdale and Back in the old days, they used to rent these little canvas rafts were about, I don't know, three and a half, four feet long, you know, two feet wide and were hard as a brick. And you could rent them from the lifeguard. And I finally conned my mom into getting me one. I had four sisters, the only boy. And I was, you know, I don't, couldn't just sit there in this, you know, I had to have something to do. So my mom, for lack of calling or quit bugging her, rented me one of these things. And boy, off I went. Well, in Fort Lauderdale, the waves are huge compared to the Gulf Coast. You know, I mean, I was having the time of my life on this thing. And what I didn't realize was there was this sideways current. I don't know if they call it a rip current or whatever, but this sideways current. And I was steady drifting away. Well, after about a half hour, 45 minutes, I decided, man, I'm thirsty. I want to go back and get a Coke or something to drink. I walked up onto the shore, my raft under my arm. I looked around. Where's mom and my sisters? Nowhere to be seen, right? Everything looks strangely confusing, and I burst into tears, right? Because there's nothing like the fear of being lost. But I'm going to tell you something worse than a child being lost, and that's that realizing as an adult you're lost and you don't know the way home to heaven. And death comes dangerously near, and you can't get away from the fact that you need something to relieve that fear. You need Jesus Christ because he is the way. If, if you have him, guess what? You're never, ever, ever lost. If you die at a young age, you're not lost. If you live to be 110 and die, you're not lost. You have a direction, you have purpose, and it relieves the fear of, 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 of getting lost. It's a wonderful relief for troubled hearts. Secondly, this name, I am, removes my need to continue the search. I don't have to keep looking for the answer or trying to find a solution. Jesus does that for me. He removes our need for further search of the truth because he is the truth. Third, this name, I am, reinforces my hope for a home in heaven. He is the only way to God, the means to eternal relationship with him because he is the truth and the life. Anything that is not in harmony with that is a 100% lie. Anything outside of him is eternal death. I love the way that uh, commentator William Hendrickson describes this dynamic. Quote, when Jesus reveals God's redemptive truth, which sets men free from the enslaving power of sin, and when he imparts the seed of life, which produces fellowship with the Father, Then and thereby, He, as the way, has brought them to the Father. Isn't that beautiful? Because of these truths, then, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. So, in closing this morning, I'd like to ask you a question Do you know Him? Do you really know this person, Jesus Christ? Can you honestly say that if you walk out into the dark of night, that you know the way, you have the truth of God and you are in the life? Have you got that set and sure in your life? Have you found the truth? Have you embraced the truth? Really, really, really put your heart and and your trust upon that. Do you have the life? Please pray with me. Our gracious Father, as we think about the words that Jesus said, that He is the way, He is the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to you except by going through Him, we realize, Lord, hearing those words, that vast numbers of humanity, perhaps even some here today, are unthinkably headed for eternal judgment. And we confess, Lord, that we ourselves are in in every way worthy of that judgment. By nature, we're corrupt, we're defiled, our wills are in bondage to our own fleshly desires, our souls are ruined, they're lifeless, they're utterly profane because of our sins. By ourselves, Lord, we know that we're without strength, we're without merit, we're without hope and completely unable to lift ourselves up from the fallen condition that we find ourselves. But we that know you have found our hope in Christ to opened the narrow way and usher, ushered us through the small gate. And we're grateful for that, Lord. We're grateful for your mercy and the exceeding riches of your grace, which are made available freely to us from the finished work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for loving us enough to rescue us from sin, to rescue us from death, to rescue us from hell. And by the work of Jesus' justice, Lord, has been satisfied. Jesus himself has been vindicated, and your law has been upheld. So we ask this morning, Lord, that you would enlarge our poor hearts to apprehend these truths. Lord, we ask you to help us to better understand them and to fill our mouths with humble thanks. And we pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.